chapter 21. And I want to preach to you a little bit tonight. Isaiah, it's a very prophetic book. God is speaking much of, of that book to Isaiah. And then Isaiah is required, if you will. He is compelled to share what God has been telling him. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 21, this is what it, it says. And they're going to put it up in the, in the King James. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation so that you can see how it all fits and maybe not get lost with some of the words that we don't typically use or the grammar and the syntaxes. But Isaiah 21 and verse 6 says, Meanwhile, the Lord said to me, Put a watchman on the city wall to shout out what he sees. Tell him to sound the alert when he sees the chariots drawn by horses and warriors mounted on donkeys and camels. And then the watchman cried out day after day, I have stood on the watchtower, my Lord. Night after night I've remained at my post. And now at last... Look, here comes the chariots and warriors. And then the watchman said, Babylon is falling, and all of the idols of Babylon lie broken on the ground. Oh, my people threshed and winnowed. I have told you everything the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, hath said. And then he goes on to have a message concerning Edom. Verse 11, this message came to me concerning Eden. Edom. Someone from Edom keeps calling to me. Watchman, how much longer until morning? When? Will the night be over? And the watchman replies, Morning is coming, but night will soon follow. If you wish to ask again, then come back and ask. I want to preach to you this, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Hallelujah. Would you bow your heads and would you pray that the Lord would allow his word to go forth today, we pray. Heavenly Father, we exalt you and magnify your name. And we're praying that you would allow the word of God that we see and we hold in our hands. It's on the screen behind us. I pray that you would let your word go forth. Would you let it find a resident inside my heart and in the hearts of those that are listening. I pray that it would be not only the intellect, but it would be also the soul and the spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Watchman, what of the night? We'll get back to that that verse, we'll get back to those those uh, uh, scriptures. I, I don't know, and I I hope hopefully, men, you're there. And, and just as a a plug for this, um, September the fifteenth. That's a Thursday, uh, and I'm kind of bitter about it because they they decided to make this event happen on the opening day of bow hunting, and so I had to have a talk with brother um, Thornton there in, in Lebanon, our men's director, but. Nevertheless, we'll be there. But uh, September the 15th, that's a Thursday, that Friday, and then that Saturday morning is men's conference. It's going to be held in Kansas City as it has the last year or so. And uh, we, we would love for as many men that want to go, you can go. Uh, I think there's even a few uh, information there on the, the that little table out there. Uh, normally what we do is you take care of your own room, but we'll register you if you would like, and, and, and we'll get you all those details. But... A couple years ago, Brother Jerry Jones spoke at that event, I believe. And, and, and if it wasn't Brother Jerry Jones, it was Brother Jerry Dean, but it was, he, they were speaking of something that happened at Brother Jerry Jones's church. Brother Jerry Jones is our uh, secretary of the United Pentecostal Church International. He's an incredible 
uh, preacher and orator, but he had pastored a while and there in Louisiana. And I don't know the whole story. In fact, I tried to get a hold of Brother Jones to ask him so that I would make sure that I, I, I gave the story appropriately, but I at least remember the gist of it. But he had a man in his church by the name of Brother Broussard. And Brother Broussard had been working high above on scaffolding and ladders. I don't know if he was doing lights or what, but he was up there in the sanctuary and he was attempting to work. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, whatever he was on collapsed or tipped and he began to fall. And it was not just a few feet. That was a very high building and he began to fall and knowing that the fall, I mean, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever been in one of those situations, time just kind of stands still. And even though it happens like that, you have the mental capacity usually to kind of play it all out and you know it's going to hurt when you hit the bottom. But as he was falling, he hit the pulpit and, and it broke his fall. Of course, they rushed him to the hospital and made sure he was okay. And amazingly, miraculously, nothing had happened. And Brother Broussard made this statement. And of course, if you know how Brother Jones preaches, you can just imagine Brother Jones preached it just until you were ready to shout and swing from the chandeliers. But he said this. He said, I was, Brother Broussard made this statement. He said, I was saved by the pulpit. It broke my fall. And I'm convinced of that. I have thought often about the, the, the pulpit. We call the pulpit this, this wooden desk. And of course there's plexiglass pulpits and glass pulpits. And there's particle board pulpits. But it's what the preacher stands behind. And I'm convinced in more ways than one that statement is so true. We are saved by the pulpit. Not by the hunk of wood that stands in front of me, but by what it goes on behind it and what goes forth. The Bible says we are saved by the foolishness of preaching. And uh, that word pulpit, it's, it's an interesting word. Uh, I would dare to guess and hazard a guess that almost everyone here except for maybe my father, and you'll understand in a moment, every one of you would assume that the word pulpit is a theological term that happens to do with church. And if that's how you think, you'd be wrong. Actually, that word pulpit comes from the boating industry. I looked hard to find a suitable picture that I could show you up there, and I could not find one that, that really would have allowed you to see what I'm talking about. But we get that term, pulpit, from an old sailing term. And years ago, I believe back in the 70s, and, and I, my, I was talking to my father today, and he had reminded me, I'd heard my dad talk of this, uh, these three points I'm about to make. I'd heard my dad talk about it and I asked him, I said, where did you hear that from? Not that I doubted he could come up with it on his own, but uh, where did you hear that from? And there was a Baptist pastor by the name of Jamie Buckingham that was in Florida uh, back in many years. He's passed alone now. But in the, I want to say the, the 70s, maybe the early 80s, he had himself a boat and he enjoyed sailing. He was there in Florida where it was, it was easy to just get out on the water. And, and he, he wrote some things about sailing and he talked about the pulpit. Now, I, I need you to use your imagination, or not your imagination, but just kind of flip through. If you've ever seen those old ships, those old sailing ships, those schooners, and, and, and if it helps you think of Pirates of the Caribbean, if you can't go back and, and understand what history says, just kind of go there. Have you ever seen those ships, those great massive ships? And in the front of the ship, there usually was a long pole or a long uh, 
protrusion that came out, a lot of times underneath it they would have intricately carved perhaps a mermaid or, or something like that or, or a person or a lady. A lot of times there was a, uh, some sort of a firebrand or lantern in her hand. That protrusion that sticks out of the front of the boat is called the pulpit. In fact, if you would look on to modern sailing ships today, you could go look at some of your larger sailboats, you will see they have a smaller pulpit. That pulpit that protrudes there, uh, Pastor Jamie Buckingham, he would write in his own experience of sailing that there were three things that the pulpit does for the boat. Number one, that bow of the boat, that pulpit, that all of that is together. That as the front of the boat, that pulpit would part the water for the rest of the boat to go through. It makes a way for the rest of the boat to get through the waves and the storms. What it does is it allows that boat to cut through the waves and gives it a whole lot uh, easier way of, of sailing than if you can imagine if that wasn't there and it was just a flat piece like a front of some old, uh, you know, VW bus trying to push through the water. You can imagine how, uh, not aerodynamic, but hydrodynamic, and, and it, it would, not be, uh, would not be useful. But that pulpit connected to that bow would cut through, and it would make the travel easier. Can I tell you today, and I want you to listen, what happens behind this pulpit, whatever minister stands behind this pulpit, stands in order to part the waves so that your traveling and your life might be a bit easier. Some of you have found yourself in a hard-headed approach to life and it seems like all you do is plow and you don't get anywhere. You got your motor running as fast and as hard as it can go, but nothing is really happening. It might be because you haven't got behind the pulpit, so to speak, and allow it to cut the waves of life so that your sailing might be a bit easier. Now, nowadays we have all of the modern conveniences of GPS and of charting and there, there's hardly not a thing in the ocean that hasn't been charted one way or the other. But back in those days of the sailing ships, that was not the case. They would have, uh, you know, great big charts, handwritten, hand-drawn charts. But those were only as good as the person that wrote them. And again, those were only as good as, as how they were updated. You might be holding a chart that, that's been, you know, a hundred years old and things have happened. One of the things that, that happened on that pulpit. We always think of the guy that sits up in the crow's nest of a ship. You know, that real tall spire that had a, a little bit of a balcony and they would sit up there. And, and while they are very necessary, they are able to see afar off. They are able to see sometimes above the curvature of the earth and able to see things that are happening. They're the ones that would shout land ho when you're looking for land. They were the ones that could spot the storms coming. But being up that high and, and as good as that is, they could not see the submerged dangers below. And so they would put many times in perilous straits of water, they would put a man out on that long pulpit. It might just be a long uh, rod or long board that stuck out. They would put a man as far in the front of the ship as they could possibly get him. And it was that job as they would go very slowly in those treacherous waters. That man with his low uh, angle of view would be able to see what lie beneath the surface. 
And it was there that he was able to see the rocks that were sticking and he could, if they were going slow enough so not to outrun what he could see, he would be able to direct them around the underwater submerged hazards. Can I tell you today that those that stand behind this pulpit your pastor, your assistant pastor, your youth pastor, I would like to tell you that they're able to see some submerged dangers that you cannot see. They're able to see things that you back in the back just kind of enjoying the cruise, you're not able to see what they see and what I see. That's one of the things the pulpit does. Now, as you know, and I know for some of you this comes as an incredible surprise, but your pastor actually likes to fish. No, that's very odd for you to think of me fishing. And Anything about fishing I enjoy. And uh, one of my big dreams is to do some deep sea fishing. I've done one trip, me and Zane and a friend of ours, we got to go out and it was a blast. But I, I would love to really get out there. And I have seen this recently uh, on a video, they've got these tuna fish, that, the, the, the fishing for tunas that they do. And usually it's long lines. It's one pole or maybe they have a couple poles set up. But sometimes when the fishing is slow and if the fishing and the tuna are close enough to the land, they will do something that I didn't know people still did. They'll spear fish for tuna. And they will get a guy on the edge of that pulpit of a, of a modern boat Long, I mean, he might be 20 or 30 feet on this board in front of the, the boat that they are at. A lot of times they'll have a, an airplane that's been flying and they'll find the schools of tuna as they are cresting on the surface. And they'll get out there and that, that person on that, that, that pulpit, he is able to see and fish better. Maybe the guy up, tall, up high can see where the fish are. But when you're close to the water like that and, and you're before the waves of the boat begin to ripple the, way, the water, you're able to see it and they will spear those fish. And so sometimes the pulpit is able to see the better fishing spots, the spouts of the whale or the schools of fish. Jamie Buckingham said that a part of the pulpit is to direct people into evangelism, able to see the places where God is wanting to work, able to see the places where God is wanting to do something. And so they're able to see from that place of the pulpit, able to see where we ought to cast our nets. Three things that the pulpit does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I don't have time to go through it all, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're introduced to three things. You're introduced, in fact, I would read to you, let me read to you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. Paul says, For Christ hath sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, both a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. 
Let me tell you what you can get out of that. First off, the Jews were always wanting a sign. You ever met somebody that in their quest for religious things, they need the sensational? I've met people, even in, in the United Pentecostal Church, I've met people who just are constantly seeking the sensational. They're always seeking a sign. Show me this and I'll believe you. Show me this, Lord, and I'll believe you. But here's the problem with the Jews. The Jews who always wanted a sign, God walked on water, God healed open, uh, open blinded eyes, God unstopped deaf ears, God set the captive of the demonics free, he even raised the dead, and all of that still didn't prove to the Jews he was God. If you're looking for signs all the time in your life, you will miss what God is wanting to do. Don't be like the Jews who require a sign. The Greeks, oh, they wanted logic and reasoning. They wanted seminars. They, Jews loved to get in lectures. They would love to just sit there and have someone expound and sound smart. The Jews, they, they liked plays and they liked entertainment. They were always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. It blows my mind in this day and age how many people know so much about the Bible yet know so little. I, I was going to uh, speak about it today in, in the message I preached about being born again and it was part of, uh, of an illustration when I preached and I told you a couple years ago I preached on around July 4th I preached one nation under God. But on that same uh, uh, deep sea fishing trip that Zane and I and Brother Aaron Thornton took, we were on a, a boat and we went out probably an hour or so out into the ocean and we fished. And Anyway, a storm began to brew and we had to come home a couple hours early. And It was a long trip. We had to skirt around the thunderstorms and so it took longer. And We got to talking to the captain of the little boat there. The captain of the boat found out that I was a pastor and Brother Aaron was a preacher and of course that... You ever notice how somehow everybody's spiritual then? And so he began to tell us, and he began to say in his own convoluted logic of, of how God works, that God loves us, and, and, and once you love God, and once you kind of accept him as your savior, everything's good. And he asked me the question, he said, now preacher, what does it take in, in your preaching, what do you say it takes to be saved? You know, I've always found that those questions are always kind of open-ended and they kind of are usually weighted. And so I have learned, and this is what I did, and it would behoove you as well, don't just jump into Acts 2.38. It's easier to say this, well, so you want to know what it takes to be saved. Let me tell you what Jesus said. And I brought him the book of John. We talked about it this morning. Except a man be born again, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. And so I said, so, so to me, in order, in Jesus' own words, in order to be saved, it means there has to be a, a birth that takes place through the water and through the Spirit. And that guy looked at me, he goes, man, I can't believe you're going to take one verse and rip it out of context like that and, and, and say that all you got to do is just love the Lord and believe and you're going to be saved. I can't believe you would take the Bible out of context. And I just kind of looked at him because what do you say at that? I mean, dude, it's Jesus talking. I don't know any other way to look at that. So, But people have a tendency to, they, they, they want logic and reasoning, but the problem is our logic and our reasoning is not his. And what makes sense in the physical 
doesn't make sense in the spiritual. What I want more than anything is not the signs. What I want more than anything is not the logic or the reasoning or the seminars. I want the preaching of the cross and of Jesus Christ. I want to make sure that every time I step behind this pulpit, I'm not here to put on a show. I'm not here just to, to, to uh, try to show you some sensational thing or try to wow you with my theological understanding. I want to preach Jesus and him crucified. And as long as that goes across this pulpit, things will happen. There's two spirits that if we're not careful will creep into a church and creep into a life. The first spirit is that of a tolerating spirit and the second is that of a substitution spirit. I don't have time. I, I'm not even to my sermon yet. But, but it, I, I, as I grow older and as this world turns, as, as life progresses, I realize how damning that tolerating spirit has become. It's a spirit that says regardless of what the Bible preaches about, regardless of what seems to be wrong according to the word of God, we're not allowed to call things black and white. We're not allowed to call things sin. And so we have to tolerate the sin. We have to tolerate the abomination. We have to tolerate the sinner. And, and so it creeps in. And that to that, I would say one phrase. That's why the Bible says you must earnestly contend for the truth. Don't let somebody tell you you got to tolerate it. Jesus didn't tolerate it. And the church cannot tolerate things that creep in if God said it's wrong. If the word of God says it's wrong, it's wrong. The second is that religious substitution spirit. And I go back to that story in the word of God where you find that David to commemorate one of his victories had made golden shields that hung in a kind of a trophy room so to speak. Later on, generations later, they took those golden shields and they ground them up and they sold them for ransom to somebody, a king that was coming in. Hezekiah had had going so far to take the, the gold off the doorposts of the tabernacle and he ground it up and he gave it as a ransom to the enemy that was coming and later on people began to ask for those shields and those shields were used in parades when they would talk about how great things are and he realized man I can't go out there because I don't have those shields anymore and the Bible tells us that Hezekiah made shields out of brass things that look good from a distance but they'll never be the original. I'm still not even on my sermon yet. But we got to be careful that as a church, we don't get enamored by the things that look good from a distance. But if you get close enough, you realize that it's counterfeit. It's a substitute. I don't want there to be a substitute for the word of God inside the lighthouse. I don't want the brass. I want the golden shield brings it full circle why it's so necessary to have a watchman. In order to understand the scope of this message, it's imperative that you and I begin to understand what the role of the biblical watchman was. Again, I would remind you that there were no uh, early detection systems in the Bible. There were no spy satellites. There was no unmanned drones that went there. Nowadays, we can see things as they happen. It unfolds. They wouldn't have known that. 
And so they had to depend on those walled cities and they would put watchmen on the walls in all directions. In fact, they would probably have had towers that were built out miles away from the city that would have watchmen in the towers so that they could see whatever might approach. Perhaps you would remember the old sing-song cadence that the watchmen would, would, would do. It's 10 o'clock and all is well. It's 11 o'clock and all is well. It was their duty to watch. It was their duty to observe. It was their duty to see what was happening around them. And then it was also their duty to sound the alarm when danger approached. To be a watchman was not a place for someone who was slothful or lazy. It was hard to stay diligent. You could go days and weeks and months, maybe even years, with nothing ever happening. And you just had to constantly be on your guard because it wasn't so much what was happening now as to what could happen in just drop of a hat. They would stay alert for the safety of the town depended on the cry of the watchman. In the book of Ezekiel, and I had asked you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17, it's there that, that the Lord gets a hold of Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, the son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the words that are coming from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and you, the watchman, don't give them a warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, and his blood will I require at thine hand. But if you as the watchman, if you warn the wicked, and he doesn't turn from his wickedness nor his wicked ways, then he will die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness... And commits iniquity and I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die because thou hast not given him a warning. And he'll die in his sin and his righteousness which he had done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless if you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not and he does not sin. And he shall surely live because he's warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. And so what, what we learn there is that Ezekiel as a watchman, God showed how important and in fact how, how responsible that watchman is for those in whom he is watching over. He says if something is coming and you don't warn the people and they die because you didn't sound the alarm, then you're, you're going to be held responsible for that. But if you sound the alarm and you tell them what I said or you tell them the enemy's coming and they decide to sleep in even though they heard you, then it's their fault. I trust you understand this. In fact, let me give you two words. Let me give you two things that watchmen have to do. Number one, they have to watch. They have to be looking what's around. They have to be observant. They have to see how people are going and coming. They have to be aware of their surroundings. They've got to watch. But the second job of the watchman is they have to warn. There are watchmen in this church that have been set over us. It's their job to sound the alarms when God speaks or when the enemy comes. 
As a pastor, I'm tasked as one of those watchmen. As your assistant pastor, or your youth pastor, Brother Perriman, Brother Lowe, as your Sunday school teachers, and even as your parents, those are watchmen who diligently, and sometimes at the night, they watch over your soul. Their responsibility, my responsibility to sound the cry, and it's your responsibility to heed the alarm. Sometimes, we're a little bit like the guy that wanted to get a job at the theater. He wanted to be an usher. And so he was interviewing for that job. And the, the, the guy that was giving that application to that, that potential usher said, I have a question for you. If the theater caught on fire, what would you do? How would you be? And that young man, he smiled. He said, I'd be okay. I could get out alive. Some of y'all didn't get that, but I'm going to help you in a moment. Isaiah, let me get back. Let's get spiritual. Y'all obviously aren't ready for the jokes. Y'all want the spiritual, so we'll get the word of God. Isaiah said this, and it's what we read in our, uh, our, our opening series of verses. Go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And later on in our reading... So first off, the, fir the, the, the first commandment of God was set up a watchman. Put him on the wall. Get him ready to watch. Get him ready to warn. But the second thing, and this is where you and I need to be. You need to call out, watchman, what of the night? I'm going to dare say today that as much as I understand and, and as much as I take the responsibility of pastoring and, and, and realize the weight of that burden. And as much as I understand the burden of any minister that stands behind this pulpit or any leader in your life that holds your life in their hand as a watchman, that responsibility is great. But there needs to be some people who start taking some initiative in their own life and begin to start asking, Watchman, what of the night? There needs to be more people that aren't content just to sleep and let the watchman sit up there. But what would happen if the people of God would wake up and start asking of themselves, what of the night? What's going on? What are you seeing, watchman? What do I need to look for? What do I need to be aware of? Watchman, what of the night? Second Timothy, Paul began to write to his protege, Timothy, and he said in verse in, in 2 Timothy verse 3 or chapter 3 and verse 1 he said you need to know that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection truce breakers false accusers incontinent fierce despisers of them that are good traitors heady, high-minded lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. From them you need to turn away. Second Peter, he goes on a, 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 a little bit later and, and he begins to tell us in, in uh, let me get there for a minute. <coughs> he says, uh, but the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. He says, so 
seeing that those things ought to be, or, or seeing that those things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought you be in holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting under the coming of the day of the Lord? Or I could read to you First Thessalonians, chapter five and and uh, verse one. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For they shall say, peace and safety, and then sudden destruction shall befall them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. You're as children of the light. You're children of the day. You're not of the night nor of darkness. Don't let us sleep. As do others, but let us watch and be sober. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm asking somebody, when's the last time you asked the watchman, what of the night? When's the last time you looked around and said, you know what? Things are a little different today. The world is spinning out of control, so to speak. I look at all the signs at the time, I hear it from the pulpit, I read it in my Bible, I hear it from those I'm around. As a pastor, I'm going to do my very best to sound the alarm. As a pastor, I'm going to do my very best to try to shake somebody awake. But I wonder what would happen if somebody would slip out at night and say watchman what of the night see what that tells me is that person is ready to hear what the watchman is seeing because it's July 4th week I'd be bereft if I didn't include something about our American history we don't think a lot about watchmen probably the closest that we get of watchmen would be that Paul Revere guy. I think it, what is it, one by land and two by sea, or is it one by sea and two? I think it's one by land and two by sea. That, that there was somebody watching the harbor. And they were watching that mass of, of, of British soldiers that was setting up, knowing that an attack or, or at least a, a push was coming. It was somebody's job up there in a church tower. They were going to put one light, one, one brand or, or, or one lantern if the enemy was coming by land and two lights up there in that tower if they were coming by sea. Paul Revere was sitting there with his horse. And he was waiting. It was his job to watch. And as soon as he saw that light in the tower, light in that church, he was to get on his horse and he was to go tearing pell-mell through the countryside. And he didn't have time to stop everywhere and knock on the door and wake you up. He would just yell as he rode by. And he would have said, they're coming by land. Or they're coming by sea. And that militia that had been gathering, that, that army that wasn't quite yet an army, was getting ready. See, this is the, the, the where you and I are today. There's a watchman in the church. 
that's ready to shine the light and ready to say this is what's coming. But it requires a Paul Revere on the ground that's got their eyes tuned to what's happening in the church. Got their eyes tuned to what's going on there so that they can help spread the word. I wonder how long it took. Paul had his horse ready. Paul had his, his, his everything ready. I, I wonder if, if he ever caught himself dozing off. Those of you that's ever been in a situation like that, maybe you, you, you've hunted or maybe you've fished all night. Those are the only two. I don't know how ladies do it in shopping. I can't imagine you dozing off while you shop. But all I can do is tell you about hunting and fishing. And I've had many a time where I've been in that tree stand and I've been in there a long time. See, I, I wear a safety harness in my tree stand not because I'm afraid of falling or the tree stand breaking, but because I'm afraid I'm going to fall asleep and just fall out of my tree stand. And, you know, you get that feeling, your, your eyes close, and you do that head jerk, and then you, you jump up and you look, and, you're, and you, you just knew you missed that deer. That buck walked by and laughed at you while you were sleeping. It's like fishing. seems like the fish always start biting when I'm not paying attention. I wonder if Paul Revere got tired and his head began to nod and he bounced awake and he, he quickly looked up and nothing in, the, in, the, in the, the, that, that tower of the church. But I would tell you today that all of the light shining out of that church would have been for naught if there wasn't someone paying attention and in a sense asking watchmen, what of the night? Because that, that, that church, whoever was in that tower, could have put all the light he wanted in that tower. And it would have done no good if there wasn't somebody looking. But old Paul Revere grabbed hold of that message that was put in that tower. And Paul jumped on his horse and began to thunder through the countryside. What I saw at the church, I now give you. Watchmen, what of the night? You need a pastor. You need someone that's going to preach from this pulpit. But I'd like to put some of that responsibility back on you. That as you pay attention to what comes across the pulpit, as you pay attention to the spiritual leaders in your life and you are hearing that warning, and I, I take you back to, to, to Pastor Buckingham saying those three things that the pulpit does. It parts the way so that you can follow. It shows you submerged dangers. And it shows you some good things like, like where to cast the net. You need the pulpit. But you need to have the mindset of you beginning to do and, and saying, what, what are you saying? What do you see, Pastor? What's going on? Pastor, what, am, what, what do you see in my life? What do you see in the direction I'm taking? What of the night? But I'd like to just turn the table one more time. And I'd like to tell every one of you today that you have a God-given mandate to be a watchman as well. Those two things I spoke earlier, you've got to watch and you've got to warn. There's a lot of people that want to do the warning, but they don't want to do the watching. And there's a lot of people that like to watch, but they don't like to warn. I'd like to tell you today that the Holy Ghost that's inside of you 
is the same Holy Ghost that allows you when you're at your school or at your friend's house or you're at your job or wherever it is, your family, God has called each one of us to be watchmen as well. That call out to those in our circle, those that we're connected to. We're able to say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what's coming. This is how the world is is turning. This is what the Bible says about those end times. It's your job to watch. And it's your job to warn. I'm going to invite you to stand today. There's so much more I could say. There's so much more I could go to. But I'm going to leave right here because I'm convinced that God is able to take this message that's broad and able to reach an entire congregation. But God's able to grab hold of it and he's able to just implant it right into your heart. Right where you need to hear it. I'm going to open these altars and I'm going to invite you to begin to come. Because I think you need to hear what thus saith the Lord to you. As our praise team begins to sing, would you just begin to come and would you spend some time in his presence? Sometimes saying, Lord, I want to hear your voice. God, what of the night? What are you trying to show me?